talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Hello and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series, Hurtle Through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking another look at Avengers Infinity War, released in April 2018, when, it's safe to say, it did slightly better than Spinning Man. I'm Tim Worthington and I'll have plenty to say about Avengers Infinity War shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give us her thoughts on Avengers Infinity War is book reviewer Joanne Shepard. Joe, where can people find you? People can mostly still find me on Twitter, even though it's supposedly now called X and is sort of going to hell in a handcart. But I'm still there where I'm Red Sky at night. And I also have a book reviews blog, which is breakfastatlibraries.com. But I have to say, I haven't updated that for quite a long time. So doing this podcast might have shamed me into updating it now. Well, who knows? You might review the original Infinity Gauntlet comic. But more about that shortly, because before (laughs) we go any further, Joe, what happens in Avengers Infinity War? Well, so much happens as it turns out actually it's not so much that so much happens it's more that so many people become involved but the kind of overarching plot as I understood it was that Thanos has decided to essentially save the universe by obliterating half of the population for which he needs the infinity stones which he needs to gather and naturally the Avengers are the people to try and stop him but as the plot unfolds lots of other people become involved and it becomes a kind of enormous almost intergalactic battle i would say okay well speaking of all those people who become involved <laughs> joe how much do you know about anyone who wasn't in avengers assemble before you saw Infinity well so, War? so more or less nothing obviously i know spider-man and that was pretty much it i mean i knew a little bit about the kingdom of wakanda but that was only because i know that there is the black panther film i've never seen it i know nothing about it didn't really know anyone else so as i was watching it i thought to myself right i know who these people are now I've seen Avengers Assemble. I know who these people are. I'm, this is going to be fine. This is going to be fine. And then for a while, I was sort of okay with it. And then I was like, oh, okay, who's what's Cumberbatch doing here? And then I just sort of got to grips with him. And I was like, oh, Spider-Man's in it as well. Okay, well, that's okay. I know him. And then the Guardians of the Galaxy turned up. And I was like, who the hell are these people? Why is, <laughs> why is, what, one of them, why is there a raccoon? One of them is some twigs. Why is there a woman who looks like a snail? I'm really confused. So I didn't know who any of them were. Yeah, it was quite, it was an interesting experience. I did have to, when I was watching it, I had to pause it a number of times to Google people (laughs) to figure out who they were and where they fitted in. So it was kind of, it was almost like, it was like watching a film and at the same time solving a really complicated puzzle. Well, you're lucky there could have been even more characters because the original comic series was based on the Infinity Gauntlet, more or less. I mean, there are elements from a couple of other things brought into it. But that was on a much wider scale. It showed how it affected the whole Marvel Universe. There were characters in that who do not appear in this. Some have later come into the films, but they very clearly decided to concentrate on what had been established. There were only two things that I'm sad that they didn't use in the original comics, which is one, Pip the Troll, who's a character who's only just turned up, watches Alf the sitcom and cries because he didn't realise humans were capable of such great art. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the other is, in a show of strength, Thanos destroys Trump Plaza. Oh, I can't believe I they left that out. I wish they'd left that in. I mean, the really interesting thing about the Infinity Gauntlet, Karen Gillan, who I'm sure we'll be mentioning a bit more, had actually read it. And one of the main reasons, apparently, she accepted the role of Nebula was that she saw that the first Guardians of the Galaxy had an Infinity Stone in it and thought, ooh, that's going to be a good story to get my teeth into. Yeah, absolutely. That's good foresight from Karen there. But what I'm wondering is, because I think generally they recap the ongoing storyline quite well and in quite sort of short bursts. And also that they introduce in the bit of commas a lot of the new characters because you are looking at a situation where I am not convinced that say everyone who'd been to see a Thor film will have been to see Doctor Strange so yeah. they have to sort of bring in most of the characters again from the ground up I think mostly that works I think even with some where you don't really get an introduction like Falcon you can just look at him and think okay so he's a bit like Iron Man but a bird and he's with the Avengers I get yeah. it but I think the two watching it again now that they don't really explained enough are I don't think Wanda and Vision their backstory is really kind of clarified enough and also Bucky Barnes showing up in Wakanda they don't really explain why he's there why he has a metal arm why he's 100 <laughs> years old and there is actually a deleted scene where Chadwick Boseman basically just says all of that in the lines <laughs> it's been a while since you came to us in Wakanda with your missing metal arm and they didn't use that because it's a little too on the nose but I'm wondering where you thought that worked and where you struggled with those aspects of it so I did struggle with a lot of those aspects of it and you are right I think for someone who isn't familiar with that universe that Wanda and Vision were the characters that I was kind of initially the most perplexed by they were ones where I did have to pause the film and start googling them to sort of figure out who they were and why they were significant and yeah I didn't know who Bucky Barnes was either although I'd, I'd heard the name I'd seen the name on Twitter but I didn't really know or understand who he was and again I did have to look him up and I can't, I mean I, he was a bit for me he was quite a bit of a non-presence in the film I have to say yeah. I didn't I couldn't really kind of I couldn't really invest in him in any way whereas once I sort of understood who Wanda and Vision were I kind of could invest in them and I found them interesting characters my problem really with the film overall and there were loads of things I really enjoyed about it but my problem with it overall is that because there are so many characters and just the whole scale of the plot is so huge that you know the universe is at stake and it's got such a it's almost a sort of a huge philosophical question at its heart as well and I just thought this needs to be a massive TV series of about 12 seasons I was thinking this is like trying to compress Game of Thrones into like two and a half hours because there were so many people involved so much going on so many kind of complicated connections and backstories and grudges and old friendships and so many things happening and so much sort of history to it all and on such a huge scale that I just felt I wasn't getting enough of anything so many of the characters were fantastic but I thought I'd, I'm not getting enough of any of them I, I want to like see these people in a bit more depth I want to know more about them I want to see them do more things you know it was a bit like watching a sort of the Marvel Cinematic Universe greatest hits <laughs> in that it's like well everyone's been brought in and I can imagine if you are someone who's super familiar with all those characters that you'd be sitting in the cinema watching it and kind of wanting to cheer whenever a new person appears but for someone like me coming into it knowing very little it's quite a different experience 
experience and I kind of felt like I was getting a sort of a kind of Marvel taster session where I was thought like well at least I can pick my favourites and then find out more about those ones but yeah it's an awful lot going on and it's quite a long film already but it's not long enough really to encompass everything that it's trying to do well this is really where the production side of things let things down a bit I think in retrospect is that originally this and Avengers Endgame were made as Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2 Ah. which does really explain like I mean for example in this I remember thinking you know watching at the cinema War Machine isn't getting very much to do apart from stand with his arms folded in the background making (laughs) wisecracks and obviously he has a much bigger role in Endgame and there are characters like Hawkeye like Ant-Man and the Wasp who aren't even in this who again are you know a huge presence in Avengers Endgame and I think had it been part one and part two that might have made it a little easier when I say easier to follow, I mean, people might have had the expectation, like with the Dune film recently, where quite a lot of people I know who've seen it, who don't know anything about Dune, have said, oh, well, I'm sure they explained that in part two, because it was part one. <laughs> yeah. There is that angle to it, which I think was slightly lost, really. Yeah, it's a bit like if you, it's a bit like someone reading Lord of the Rings and sort of just reading the first two books and thinking that, that was the complete story, if you see what I mean. I mean, I don't know why I use that analogy, because I hate Lord of the Rings, but yeah, I think it does feel almost like a sort of an extended episode of something rather than a complete film in its own right I felt like a lot of things were being set up rather than taken to their conclusion if that makes sense so it does make sense to me that it would be part one of a two or three part series of films I think well one area I think they scored really highly with it though was they do talk a lot about this on the commentary is the writers were very keen to because you know the the usual thing with team up things is either you know the characters get on really well and really efficient or hate each other you know are like kind of yeah 80s action films versions of Frasier and Niles (laughs) absolutely yes but for this they wanted to avoid more for their own benefit in terms of not falling into writing traps was trying to avoid anything that might lead them down that route and they came up with a process that they called strange alchemy which is the idea of putting characters who had no business being together together and the first thing they thought was Doctor Strange and Tony Stark you've got Tony wants to protect the physical world and that's it Doctor Strange wants to protect the metaphysical world and that's it and they don't care about each other's objectives and then throw into that neither of them want Spider-Man there for different reasons. Tony because he feels sort of protective and fatherly towards him and Doctor Strange because he just considers him an annoying little kid. Yeah, an irritant, yeah. <laughs> and from that, I think they really sort of got people into combination and got a lot out of them. Like, I would never have thought of Thor going off with Rocket and Groot on a mystical quest, but that's possibly my favourite strand of it. Yeah, I did enjoy that and I did enjoy the way that, as you say, that these are people who have got no business in even knowing each other really i did find the sort of interaction between the different characters in that way really interesting and you're right i don't think they sort of apart from the kind of rivalry between thor and chris pratt's character they don't really fall into too many sort of cliched buddy tropes i don't think I did enjoy the fact that they did something a bit different with it. And yeah, suddenly sort of having the characters going to Wakanda, and I really enjoyed that. Again, I just wanted to see more of it, really, because I find the whole idea of Wakanda and those characters absolutely fascinating. And I'm definitely going to watch Black Panther now because I was so intrigued by that 
whole setup. But I like the idea of it almost being like a sort of almost being like a kind of diplomatic mission and kind of forming those alliances. And again, also again, Game of Thrones, you see, like unlikely people forming alliances. And I did like the way. So I did like the way that all the different worlds collided. I really liked in the Wakanda section. Again, this was something that only really, possibly because there was so much going on, but I only really noticed on rewatching. Okoye gets as much to do as Black Panther himself mm. in terms of when she chides him about, I thought when you said you're opening Wakanda to the world, we might get the Olympics or even the Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the disgusted <laughs> look she gives to Bruce Banner in the Hulkbuster armour. Things like that. You know, and there is that. It has been the cause of a little bit of controversy because some people see it as a bit contrived. But that the she's not alone scene mm. where her and Black Widow, I'd say they save Wanda, but Wanda <laughs> emerges more powerfully from it. Mm. Her prominence and in the cliffhanger as well, which we won't go too far into just yet, but she's one of the main reactions in it. And mm. I was really quite pleased about that because given yeah. that they left out some other supporting characters like Spider-Man's Aunt May doesn't appear in it or mm. Thor's mates Eric and Darcy are nowhere to be seen, you know, which I think is a deliberate thing, but they have got the general of the Wakandan army and they give her a lot to do. Yeah, she does have a lot to do and I really appreciated that. I really noticed it as well and I don't think it's, I don't think any of that felt contrived to me. I didn't think any of her scenes felt contrived and I was really fascinated by her as a character and yeah, again, it's that thing of just wanted more of it. There were so many kind of good things but in sort of small amounts and that was why it was at times a little bit of a frustrating watch for me but then each kind of individual component I did really enjoy and her character does have a lot to do she's a really strong character in fact she probably I found her appearances more memorable than Black Panthers casting no shade on Chadwick Boseman because I think he's amazing god he's such or was such a good looking man as well just so charismatic on screen but actually in terms of things to do I think I've been left with a lot more. She made more of an impression on me in that film. I think it was quite, I'm going to say brave. No, it's not brave, is it? It's not It's not just brave to have a woman doing things <laughs> in a film. But by the standards of, <laughs> by the standards of Hollywood, <laughs> I think it was a good decision to have her step up and be at the fore. They also did leave out very consciously most of, I mean, the Agent Carter characters do turn up in Avengers Endgame in the time travel bit, which I'm not going into all that now, but all of the TV characters from that point are very consciously not present, and at one point, they wanted to have the Defenders in it, who were in early drafts, and Mm. they were written out because it would take too long to introduce these five new characters, but also, I wonder if it's because at that point, I mean, they've brought some of them back in as softer characters, whether they say softer, you know, they're giving them a more humorous side, but they might be too brutal for a Hollywood film when you've got a group of people where the nicest one is a bloke who thinks that to bring law and order to Harlem you have to go around punching people <laughs> and the worst one just wants to execute every criminal ever to do anything even slightly wrong it doesn't really fit with the tone of this although it's interesting to spot it is a bit of a sport to see where they might have introduced them in the script the one thing that's really obvious is when Doctor Strange and Wong are arguing about what sandwich they want from Bleecker Street <laughs> Deli obviously that's the one Iron Fist goes to so that presumably would have been the routine but as well as that they left out the characters in the teen shows and I think that's because you already had Peter Parker being in such peril mm. and with such a frightening scene at the end they probably didn't want to bring in the runaways and cloak and dagger and just have them killed off basically and no. the Inhumans they probably just 
were like, yeah, you guys, you, you just stand over there for a bit. We don't really want you. <laughs> no, I, it's interesting what you say about Peter Parker being in such peril, because I always kind of forget that Spider-Man is basically a child. And I did sort of think like, oh, my God, this is quite hardcore, isn't it? I did have a kind of real, almost like a sort of a sense of real tragedy to his involvement. It sort of reminded me of when you see something that's set in the First World War and there'll be a kid who's lied about his age to sign up and has ended up in the trenches and you kind of know that he's going to get his leg blown off in the Somme in the minute he on his first day. I had almost that kind of feeling about Peter Parker's presence because, as I say, I always kind of forget that he's, you know, a school kid. He's a teenager. And it's a big... I mean, you know, that's a big weight on his shoulders. By the way, was that Stanley driving that bus? Yes, yes. <laughs> Another of his cameos, yes. Right, because I'm, I'm no expert in these things, but I thought, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's Stanley. I'll have to ask Tim. I'll have to check. There is so much in it, though. There are bits that even I forget. But the one that I really, really forgot was the Red Skull appearing in it. Watching that scene again, it was very interesting to see because the whole history of the Red Skull, I'm sure you can probably work most of this out just from the name, but obviously, you know, he was an antagonist of the original Captain America in the 40s comic strip, so he's basically the Nazi super scientist. And okay. They brought him back occasionally over the years, but mainly it was in the late 70s with Captain Britain, which was founded on sort of the idea of, you know, they're not actually called the National Front in the strip, but he is fighting neo-Nazis for a lot of it, and the Red Skull comes back in league with them and do you remember the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon? I do. There's an episode of that that's now disappeared but the Red Skull's the villain where there's a lot of swastikas in it and so on. It oh, is wow, not on Disney Plus or anything. Yeah. I'm not surprised it's no. not Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> but he was the main villain in the first Captain America film and disappeared after handling the Space Stone at the end of it and you know in that he's played by Hugo Weaving in full-on Indiana Jones Nazi mm. eye-popping pomp yeah. and he reappears in this as a figure haunted by the poor judgment of his past and you know seeing the rest of the universe repeating the mistakes he made mm. and you know it's the way he says I two sort the stones I even held one of them and it cast me out here it's such a haunting scene that it is very haunting it's that whole idea of the sort of loneliness of evil isn't it and a lot of villains are very tragic and there is a great sort of, like you say, there is a sort of great kind of haunting sense of tragedy and regret about that scene, which I have to say, I was not expecting. It blindsided me a little bit because, like I say, I wasn't really expecting that. But then in the film generally, there was a lot of, like I found Thanos a really kind of tragic and sort of lonely and sad figure. I'm slightly undermined by the fact that he's such a massive great lump, <laughs> which I kind of wished he hadn't been. I was like, well, you look like, you know, you just look like some sort of meathead. But <laughs> clearly there is a more philosophical side to you. Well, as Star-Lord points out, he does look like Grimace. Yes, he's yes, he Grimace, that's right. I'd forgotten that line. He does look like Grimace. But he does get two incredible moments. But the first thing I think of, when you get an artistic director saying there's no emotional depth to these things, the two Thanos lines I think of are, when he says to Gamora about Star-Lord, I like him. Yeah. As if, you know, I'm having to do this terrible thing, but I'm still your father, and I think you made a good choice with your boyfriend. Mm. And also, <laughs> when he says to Tony Stark, you have my respect, Respect. when I'm done half humanity will still be around and I hope they remember you mm. and you know to him it is only right that somebody would challenge him so vociferously because mm. that is a natural order of things mm. and you know they're real emotional beats 
Absolutely. I think there are lots of moments like that in this film. And there were some moments that really sort of struck me and that I found really kind of touching. And I think it's absolutely, it's nonsense to say that these films don't have emotional depth because they clearly do. Just because there's huge battles and spaceships and magic and infinity stones, there's no reason why there shouldn't be emotional depth in them. And there is, there absolutely is. And I think, you know, I think to suggest that there's not is just snobbery, to be honest. I also think it's a really brilliant performance it's Josh Brolin isn't it who plays Thanos I think it's a really brilliant performance from him because I mean obviously you can't really see his real face at any point because you know CGI and makeup and everything but you can still he brings a real emotional depth to it you know you can sort of see the look in his eyes and the expression on his face you know you can see what he's feeling I mean it's really genuinely really sad I mean I felt sorry for him at a lot of points despite the fact that he's going to murder half of humanity but you know who hasn't wanted to do that (laughs) Yeah, I do think somewhere underneath it all, he has a point. He completely does have a point. That's the thing. I think, in a way, I sort of think, well, I mean, he's kind of right, isn't he? It's almost like that thought experiment where some sort of train crash is about to occur and you have to decide whether to stop it by pushing a fat man off a bridge so that it stops. (laughs) So that he is killed, but the 30 people on the train are saved. It's a bit like that, isn't it? It is that sort of, well, would you get rid of one half to save the other half? If you think you can secure the future of humanity, is it not the right thing to do to make some kind of sacrifice? And that notion of sacrifice kind of carries on through the film. And obviously he sacrifices his own daughter. And it's clear that he finds that very hard. It's not that he doesn't care about her. He he does. I found that quite fascinating. And as I say, I think it's, it's a really good performance from Josh Brolin, despite the fact that he does look like Grimace. And the fact that you could, I could sort of feel quite touched by that character, even though he looked like Grimace, is a testament to his performance, I think. Well done, Josh. Well, another great performance I think never gets mentioned is Peter Dinklage's E-Tree. And what I yes. really love is the way that he plays him as this broken, haunted, can you say man? He's devastated. Everything has gone wrong for him. And suddenly, I mean, this shows how much is going on. We haven't even mentioned Thor yet. And I know you really like no, Thor. but you know, my favourite, yeah. Thor turns <laughs> up with these two weirdos. And Eitri is so dignified and, you know, full of just mourning and regret. That carries on until Thor has to open the shutters of the Dying Star by himself. He said, you do realise you're about to take the full force of a Dying Star. It'll kill you, boy. Only if I die. Yes. That's what killing you means. He's suddenly thrown out his understandable but self-imposed mournfulness Mm. by being confused. Yeah, absolutely. I think Peter Dinklage is such a fantastic actor. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Again, Game of Thrones, you see, it's another Game of Thrones theme. In fact, Sacrifice of Daughters is a Game of Thrones thing as well because Stannis Baratheon sacrifices his daughter in Game of Thrones. So yeah, Peter Dinklage is a fantastic actor and has such it's such a dignified performance i think and it, and again like you know sad there's a real kind of quiet dignity to it but i think it's great i think those are great scenes again not enough of them but a really interesting point in the film and also those kinds of scenes are a bit of the let up from the really kind of high octane action scenes and you do get those more quiet scenes that are more character driven which are a good counterpoint to the huge battles and the huge fights and the spaceships and the amazing flying suits and that kind of thing so I really appreciated those scenes because otherwise frankly it'd just be exhausting you need those quieter scenes and those quieter characters I think
having mentioned Thor, this is the juncture where I should ask, which is just really asked at the beginning, but I have to do my standard questions. Who and what did you really like in this? There were lots of things I liked in it. Thor and Tony Stark were probably my favourite characters in Avengers Assemble and probably, again, my favourite characters in this. I also really liked Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange a character I sort of heard of but wasn't really familiar with and I think it's a I mean it's a bit Sherlocky, isn't it he is kind of being magic well, there, Sherlock there is a deleted scene where Robert Downey Jr. says to him no shit Sherlock because they have both played <laughs> Sherlock Holmes in reboots oh they should have of course of course I'd forgotten Robert Downey Jr. the Sherlock Holmes in the Guy Ritchie film is it the Guy Ritchie film that it's it Guy is Ritchie. yes basically where Sherlock Holmes was to dive sideways in slow motion with two guns is how I describe that's, yeah that's right and a lot of it they filmed some of that outside my old office in Manchester that film yeah I think Cumberbatch is essentially being sort of magic Sherlock but I think he's very good at those sorts of roles and also I don't normally find Benedict Cumberbatch attractive but I actually did find him quite attractive in this I don't know why I just found the character I think it's just that I found the character quite appealing I liked his kind of thoughtfulness and again he's quite a quietly more of a quietly thoughtful character he's a bit of a counterpoint to kind of that high octane action stuff whenever I whenever I see Benedict Cumberbatch now it reminds me of a time when we had a Christmas quiz where I worked where the colleague who was being the quiz master was reading out the questions and accidentally referred to Benedict Cumberbatch as Benedict Cummerbund without even realising the mistake that he made so every time I see Benedict Cumberbatch I think oh it's Benedict Cummerbund but yeah Benedict Cumberbund is very very good in this and I also I mean I enjoyed there weren't really any I can't get to grips with Captain America I still can't I'm just not on board I just find him dull I found him dull in Avengers Assemble and I know you have explained his interesting backstory to me I'm sorry but I still find him really dull but I really enjoyed seeing Spider-Man I was kind of interested in the Hulk storyline in this in that he isn't the Hulk in most of this he's Bruce Banner and he cannot become the Hulk he can't sort of call up the Hulk which I found quite interesting I mean it's almost like he was sort of it was almost like a kind of superhero erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and it was like he couldn't quite he couldn't quite perform and he, he was almost like felt a bit humiliated by that. But I was really interested in the idea of them in the fact that they are essentially two separate people. They're not one person that turns into another. They are two individuals almost that occupy the same space and one will appear at times. And I sort of thought, well, the, the Hulk just kind of gets kind of caught up when something needs doing and maybe the Hulk would just like to appear more just to do normal stuff maybe he doesn't maybe he feels used and I found that idea very interesting although it did mean that I didn't really get to see enough of the Hulk who I really like what was your take on the Guardians of the Galaxy well obviously I didn't really know who any of them were and as I said one of them is some twigs one of them is a raccoon and one of them is a sort of human snail or looks like a human snail. I don't know what she really is supposed to be. I enjoyed their interactions together and their kind of sort of sometimes slightly awkward relationship. As with Avengers Assemble, I really wanted to know how things work sort of domestically on their ship. Because <laughs> I was like, well, where, where, but, you know, they're all just kind of sitting there together. Where do they all sleep? What are they eating? Who does the cooking? Have they got staff? I really, I know it's not the point of the <laughs> But these are the things that I think, like, what are the practical details? Who's doing all the admin? Who's doing the supermarket shop? I did enjoy those characters a lot. I wasn't particularly interested in Chris Pratt's character, Star-Lord, I have to say. I just 
possibly because I don't really like Chris Pratt as an actor, which probably didn't help. But I really enjoyed the three women. Against my initial instincts, I did enjoy Rocky as well, because I kind of thought, oh, God, this is going to be like the Marvel version of Scrappy-Doo, an annoying comic foil. But no, I thought, like, I'm taking this raccoon really seriously now. <laughs> I did enjoy their interactions. I really enjoyed their sort of their awkward relationship with the Avengers in that they're sort of two groups of two quite, you know, sort of disparate groups of people that are essentially trying to do the same thing but going about it in very different ways and have all sorts of conflicts and almost like not a battle for supremacy because that makes it sound like more than it is but there is that kind of slight well who is actually in charge here and the more kind of thinking well knowing that they've got to cooperate but not really being quite sure how that's going to work and I found that quite interesting from a character point of view I also really liked Drax as well. <laughs> really, really, particularly when he was sort of saying, I've made myself invisible. And they're like, no, no, we, we can see you, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. Despite really disliking Chris Pratt, it did make me think like, well, maybe I should probably watch Guardians of the Galaxy because I'd like to know more about those characters. I mean, I can't really get on board with Groot. I can't invest. He looks a bit like there used to be an advert for, I think it was is it Dreamland Beds, where there is a log, sort of a human log. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, I was like, oh, it's the log from the Dreamland Beds advert. And I think Gamora and Nebula are brilliant. I think they're fantastic characters. And the snail lady, whose name I've forgotten. Mantis. Yeah, well, Mantis, yeah. I was struck on rewatching it. It's something I'd never really picked up on from the actual Guardians films is that when you think about it, there, you've got three incredibly attractive. You know, you can't say they're known for their looks, they're known for their acting, but let's face it, they do a lot of magazine shoots between oh, them. Oh, yeah. But yeah, here, they're women, completely yeah. covered in prosthetics and give them really weird characters to work with and i cannot help but see that as a positive i mean i'm worried that sounds a bit patronizing now no i know what you mean and yeah you're right because you can't really i mean sort of facially they're unrecognizable really you know i know the actors that played them but you would be hard pushed to sort of guess who they were if you did know because there is so much in the way of prosthetics and so much makeup and they are sort of really really odd looking i mean they're still very beautiful they're still wearing like very tight costume and are sort of you know stunning and all generally have like amazing hair and stuff <laughs> but yeah I do think it's a positive as I say that I mean they're almost unrecognisable really and I do think that's a positive and they are genuinely sort of weird looking and very otherworldly and strange particularly Mantis I think because of those weird sort of antennas genuinely looks very non-human and I was interested in her character generally because I found her the sort of probably the most interesting of the three again not enough to do she didn't have enough to do but what she does have to do is brilliant I think and now the big one because they do divide people wonder and vision i enjoyed their characters i liked them again i I think my issue with them is that i didn't feel that they really fitted into this film very well when they were on screen i felt like i was watching characters from a different film entirely that didn't really gel with the rest of the cast but I did really like their characters and I would be interested to see more of them in a different setting, I think. Until I paused the film and looked them up, I hadn't really tweaked that Vision is actually sort of not an actual human. He's a sort of a sentient... Have I got this right? He's a kind of sentient android thing. Is that roughly right? <laughs> Basically, I mean, the backstory is slightly different in the comics, but he was part of Tony Stark's initiative to build sort of a... When he refers to a suit of armour around the world, was he made several attempts at building a world protecting system which did not go well yeah vision emerged out of that i see it was the nicest though the most polite of them yeah and i found that very interesting because obviously him and wanda have what seems to be a very sort of human relationship but he's not actually a human being he's essentially artificial which i found 
fascinating. But as I say, I don't think they really fit that well into this film. I didn't feel like they really had that much of a place in this film and this plot. They felt a bit tacked on to me. I mean, I found Wanda a little bit dull, a bit one note, maybe. I was probably more interested in Vision than Wanda. I might be being very unfair. The Infinity Stones themselves really look like, they look really cheap and plasticky. I think like of a film they with They look that, like Meltish Newberry fruits. <laughs> they really do. They really do. I was like, with a film with a budget that big and with that level of special effects expertise, they could have at least made them look like a big deal and not like, like you say, like Newberry fruits. Just terrible. My only other observation was that with Thanos and his kind of plan to save the universe by obliterating half of it, I just sort of thought, I mean, in some ways you could see him being on the right side of history because we obviously do need to do something to save the future of this planet, but it's a far cry from Just Stop Oil, isn't it? It's probably a bit of an escalation from like super gluing yourself to the Mona Lisa or something or throwing some orange confetti at Ronnie O'Sullivan during the snooker, isn't it? Maybe if Just Stop Oil did just threaten to obliterate half the population people would take more notice of them but yeah <laughs> just now I thought Ronnie O'Sullivan might have disappeared in the middle of a match <laughs> no that would be awful I'd be devastated if O'Sullivan went God. <laughs> superhero of snooker it all built up to the two concurrent battles and i think what is fascinating about them is the one in space that is the people who can outsmart thanos Mm. really all gathered together and it's notable he deals with them more brutally physically than he does the people on earth who are more capable of outwitting him in the military sense yes and it's more about just repelling and holding them back whereas there are some watching it the way he slams peter parker into the ground is quite it's horrible because it's actually have really figured out yeah. this kid is thinking yeah and the quickest way to stop that is just to knock him unconscious just to flatten him yeah when i saw that i, I sort of winced when it happened because it's quite so brutal it, it is quite horrible and obviously with these films a lot like most of the violence is for obvious reasons is quite cartoony and quite stylized but i mean i really felt that when he slams him into the ground like that i really sort of thought god that's 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 horrible you are right i think that those battles feel a lot more brutal and a lot more there are times when you get the impression that thanos is like well i'm just going to do what's necessary i'm not going to do more than what's necessary but then the battle in space it does feel like more personal i think and more that he's angry that they're trying to thwart him and he sort of almost wants to not have revenge but maybe wants to punish them for trying to thwart him rather than just repel them i think you're absolutely right because what's notable that is the joke stop in space yes it's, it becomes very yeah on the earth battle you get a lot of things like rocket asking if you can buy bucky's arm and yes i am Groot. Yeah. i am steve rogers which i imagine probably appealed to your sense of finding yeah. steve rogers a yeah. bit boring yeah that contrast is very very interesting and then it makes it all the more poignant when he's approaching vision when the battle's lost basically and the others just trying to slow thanos down by seconds i find that a really affecting scene you know you've got black widow cannot do anything and she runs at him and he just sort of like telekinetically tosses her aside yeah. I, know, I know you're not mad on group but that looks painful when he sort of mm. wraps his like <laughs> fronds around him and he just yeah. snaps them off that is horrible actually that is horrible and i did sort of think like oh that's really unpleasant that's horrible that's a really horrible thing to do but i know exactly what you mean about that particular scene because i mean essentially they're sort of almost like his limbs aren't they so it was almost like i was thinking oh god that's horrific i also think there's such a visual contrast between the battle in space 
place and what happens on Earth in the sense that just the whole colour palette of the scenes is quite different and the battle in space feels a lot darker and grittier and I mean you think it'll be the other way around but it's not the battle in space is kind of darker grittier gloomier feels a bit more high stakes in a way and a bit more grim whereas as you say on Earth there are jokes and things like that but then it almost kind of comes together and suddenly that kind of I mean it's there are some really like as you say when that moment where Black Widow just can't do anything those moments are bleak it becomes quite bleak when the two worlds come together if you see what I mean and there's a real sense of powerlessness and almost like a quite a fatalistic feel to it as it approaches its end which is obviously a very grim end it really is the one that I think really wrong-footed people was Peter Parker when everyone starts disappearing when he does yes and apparently in the script it was just he just like said Mr. Stark I don't feel too well and disappeared and Robert Downey Jr. pushed Tom Holland and said come on we can do something with this after that take it was retrofitted to be right that's it because he's technically cross species either he's been snapped and the spider hasn't or vice versa and it's a battle between the two but there were kids in genuine distress leaving the cinema when I saw it saying will Spider-Man be alright and at that point nobody really knew because the only things that have been announced were Avengers Endgame you know and there would only be obviously the characters left at the end of this in that or so we thought Ant-Man and the Wasp which they'd already said it was going to be set slightly before Infinity War Sony being Sony had said we're doing another Spider-Man film but that meant nothing that was close enough for Andrew Garfield to have come back so nobody really knew what was going to happen and as I say kids were genuinely upset by that I mean I was a bit more shocked by some of the others particularly it's got so much poignance now but Black Panther saying up general up this is no place to die to Okoye and then it's him that disappears and she looks like she doesn't know her world makes no sense anymore because her king has gone Drax as well just like looking really confused saying Quill yeah and it's the fact that it's that sense of people just disappearing in the blink of an eye like that when you kind of see them sort of physically disappear on screen that really hits home I think and also the randomness of it as well because it's 50% of humanity and it is people just being picked at random so that whole senselessness and being the people left behind and trying to make some kind of sense out of that is quite a powerful thing I think and they've never explained they've refused to explain what rationale they use for deciding who would and wouldn't be left at the end of it yeah and yeah. I like that that mystique has been preserved I mean I think some people's contracts might have had something to do with that but on the other hand yeah. you know Paul Rudd not in this one in the Avengers Endgame so that can't have been the be all and end all I mean you do get basically the six core Avengers still there but I other choices so, but... are much more interesting yeah when I kind of realised that like oh right this is how it's going to end I thought well who and I couldn't really see any and you say I suppose you do get the kind of core ones but I did see I was kind of trying to make sense of it in my head and I couldn't I think it's interesting that they haven't explained the rationale then and in that man of the boss believe it or not we get a funny version of this cliffhanger <laughs> I might have to watch that as like a cleansing experience. <laughs> it's like the, I, might have to, I might have to watch that as the antidote to the bleakness of, of the end of Infinity War. Right at the end, of course, we do get... The main reason the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. weren't in this was it was too logistically difficult with, you know, the ongoing series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Linking up the two things time-wise became almost impossible. By chance, by sheer good fortune, most of them were stuck in the future in the storyline at the point that this came out. It does mean they're late warning. Nick Fury and Maria Hill yes who turn up pretty much 
too late to do anything apart from activate a pager. Yeah, I was very puzzled by the pager. I was like, why are you using a pager? What's wrong with you? I remember having a pager about 20 years ago for work when I used to be on call for a press office. And I just thought, oh, no, there's a like he's on, he's going to have to answer some media inquiries. Oh, no, that's not what this pager's for. Well, the best thing about that scene was apparently it took all day to film because Samuel L. Jackson actually had to say motherfucker in full. And obviously <laughs> everyone who disappeared in that scene was still on set. And so between the cast laughing and the crew laughing, they apparently just endlessly had to retake it. <laughs> In a way, that doesn't surprise me. It's a good, <laughs> it's, it's an excellent scene. I was pleased, apart from being puzzled by the pager, but I found that scene quite pleasing. So Well, yeah. that was a pager that Captain Marvel gave Nick Fury in 1995. Ah, of course, of course it was. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't know that. That's a difficult thing. For me, that's, oh my God, Captain Marvel. <laughs> For other yeah. people, it was like, why has that page gone sort of red and blue? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the star in the middle. Like, what's, hap- what's happening? What, 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 what's going on? Why has he got a pager? Why, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> now I understand. <laughs> I feel like I need to do homework every time I watch one of these films. Maybe you could use what I'm about to ask you about for that. Right, okay. Joe, if you had a lightning-powered axe that could summon the Bifrost, what would you use it for? Oh, God. I mean, lightning power... Do you know what? I would be an absolute danger if I had access to things like that. Whenever I watch anything where someone has an incredible weapon or an incredible power or something in these films, I always sort of think to myself, I would just become like a horrific villain if I was... (laughs) I would just be like anyone who annoyed me. I'd be like, right, you're finished. Like people who were like chewing gum too loudly next to me on a tram or something. I'd be like, right. I wouldn't even think twice about it. I'd be terrible. This is why we shouldn't, guns shouldn't be allowed. Because I would be someone who, if I had access to a gun, I probably would just be killing people right, left and centre. So, yeah, I think I would be an absolute danger if I had access to a lightning powered axe. I mean, there's all sorts of things I probably I'd like to finish off. I've literally got a list as long as your arm. I mean, I'm already thinking of obviously you've got your big ones. You've got your Trumps, your Boris Johnson's, your Jim Davidson's. It's always my, the third most... I like to think I'd use the power for good, but I think I would just use it to deal with petty minor irritations. Well, we better keep them off eating dwarfs Christmas card list. <laughs> yeah. Joe, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.